0: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
3: Find Ear hustle wherever you get
2: your
1: podcasts.
2: Cloudy skies, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. In just a moment, newly named president and CEO for the Metro Atlanta Chamber, Katie Kirkpatrick, addresses what role the chamber can play in closing Atlanta's economic and equity gap.
3: How do we drive change around systemic racism through economic development and the equity issues there.
2: That conversation coming up in just a moment. Meanwhile, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp issued a COVID-19 update message today. According to Kemp, the state, quote, continues to make solid progress in the fight
3: against COVID-19. Our hospitalizations remain low and surge capacity is high. We have conducted more than 839,000 tests at more than 150 testing sites around our state including 100 percent of nursing home patients who remain the most at risk population in this pandemic.
2: As of right now there are 67,675 confirmed cases and according to the state department of health the number of deaths statewide is 2,678. Those hospitalized with the disease has now reached 10,121. That, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Health. Finally, it was a historic night for the Georgia legislature as HB 426 passed. This is Georgia's first hate crime legislation in a decade. It would impose harsh penalties for those convicted of crimes motivated by hate based on race, sexual orientation and religion. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the Metro Atlanta Chamber, Atlanta isn't up and coming. It's here, it's now, and it's next. And for 160 years, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, also known as MAC, has been a connector of sorts for area businesses to the communities that they serve. It's part of their mission. But also with a focus on three key areas, economic development, public policy, and promotion. And now there's new leadership. Katie Kirkpatrick is the new president and CEO, which means only one thing since I've said all that. She joins me now to talk about her new role and vision for the organization. Katie, welcome to the program, and congratulations.
3: Thank you, Rose. And I'm I'm honored to be on the program and have the opportunity to to speak with you. We haven't had this opportunity yet to, no, to chat, so, to it. All right. Well,
2: I do want to begin, though, with getting your thoughts, Katie, just on Atlanta right now, you know, from the, the protests some weeks back to the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks. I read a post where someone stated they felt Atlanta is hurting right now. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, as an Atlantan, I couldn't agree more. You know, I'm also a mother. And so listening to our mayor, you know, speak out from her heart about being a mother of, of, you know, here in Atlanta, I think I, I join all Atlantans to say that my heart is breaking as well. I, I don't think we ever anticipated that we would see this type of challenge in our city. Um, but, you know, I also am optimistic mm-hmm. about our city. Um, we have proven that we can have tough conversations. Uh, and and listen to the voices um, that we're hearing right now from our black community. And my hope in this new leadership role is that we can take and learn from those conversations and build a brighter future and accelerate change for our region. And so, you know, the timing for the leadership change was um, to some people interesting but to me, it was a real opportunity to build on a legacy and and to really affect change.
2: Let's talk about leadership for a moment because you know the history of this city. It's a city with leaders from all sectors, business, faith, civic and social, academia, the arts community. Is this a time now for leaders like yourself to convene other leaders and then talk about what role you all can play? Since you just said, you know, you agree your heart is broken. This city is hurting. What
3: can you all do? I think the chamber has been active, as you pointed out, for 160 plus years in this community. And and one of the strengths that I have valued in the almost 13 years of being a chamber employee is our ability to convene um, the community around issues. Um, And a good example of that was an initiative that took place right when I joined the chamber surrounding Grady Hospital. Mm -hmm. And, And that really was a community challenge about how do we lift and save Grady Hospital because of its role and its history and its relevance in our community. And so I think we can draw on experiences like Grady Hospital and other initiatives where we can pull um, hopefully um, the right voices to the table um, and, and be part of a conversation about how we lead change not only through an economic recovery rose that we're gonna have to to, to push through, but also to address the issues around health inequity mm-hmm. that the pandemic has, has highlighted for us. And then certainly the recent protests and the issues around systemic racism. Um, now is the time for us to, to come to the table and we wanna be part of that tough conversation and we wanna be part of the change.
2: I think it is, I don't have to do my research on this, but I'm pretty sure you are the only incoming president and CEO of the Metro Atlanta Chamber that is coming in with the pandemic. You mentioned the economic equity issues and obviously some protests that still continue. So you combine all of that with what would be your typical vision and priorities for this organization. How do you begin to even prioritize
3: Well, I think we start with the foundation of what the chamber is built upon. And as you mentioned in the opening, you know, we're focused on um, grow, which is economic development. We've got um, advocacy, which is where I come from, the Mm -hmm. um, the public policy sector. And then, of course, we've got promotion um, and really marketing our region to talent and to businesses. Those core foundational pieces will not change. And so we'll continue to to invest in those three areas. But what I will say is that I want to reimagine how we do that work. How do we build in some of the issues I just raised with you around public health and the inequities that have been highlighted by the pandemic? How do we drive change around systemic racism through economic development and the equity issues there? And then public policy, of course, is an important lever for addressing not only the economic recovery, but the public health and the, and the systemic racism issues too. And so, you know, we're going to stay true to who the chamber is um, and focus on those, those core areas, but we're going to reimagine how we accomplish our work and build in what clearly has risen to the top over the last several months and is in, is in front of us right now.
2: Coming out of the Great Recession, Atlanta was one of those cities that rebounded fairly well. I think that's a a pretty accurate assessment uh, considering those sectors when we talked about housing and we looked at construction and, and other areas. So now coming out of a pandemic for a city that also was grappling with income inequality, we've had so many conversations. You listen to this program about development and how great it is for the city, but it hasn't always been great for legacy residents But you also want to attract new businesses. You also want to help the businesses that are here. So you've got three different groups here. You're helping. You're trying to help and serve. So how do you see, when you get to that intersection, the role you all play? Development, new development, and also making sure folks can stay in their communities to be a part of this and enjoy the economic development that you all are so part of.
3: Well, I think you just eloquently highlighted um, how we need to reimagine our work, right? So, I had a great conversation with our um, chief economic development officer yesterday as we were beginning to to listen not only to the feedback from our staff mm-hmm. that is in the economic that our professional economic development um, folks, and then also hearing from our investors plus the community, and we were we were having this deep conversation about. How do we change perhaps the metrics that we use when we're looking at economic development? How do we change maybe the attributes that we look for in companies when we're working on a relocation? Mm-hmm. You know, are there um, are there priority geographical areas that need, um, you know, additional Um, elevation as they do their work. And I would tell you right now, Rose, I'm not sure we have the specific answer, Mm -hmm. but we are going to develop a framework to be able to address those questions and seek out and learn from our community and national experts on how we can do this better. And and I am committed to that because I think the inequities that you've just highlighted, I'm probably not gonna get the statistic right, but the fact that there is a zip code Um, and I think Southwest Atlanta, that when you drive five miles north, the median income differential is staggering. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that we cannot ignore going forward. And now is the time when we're facing a pandemic, uh, an economic recession um, and, and systemic racism for us to reimagine how we accomplish our work to change those outcomes.
2: So far in this conversation, you have mentioned this word, I think, three times, which is listen or listening. And I always ask leaders, CEOs, executive directors, presidents about their leadership style. They typically say, I want to listen. I don't know if I've Mm -hmm. just given away the answer. But when you talk about your leadership style, Katie, how would you define that?
3: Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad you heard me say, listen, because I think that's super important at the time we are right now, but my leadership style is very style is very team focused. Um, as those that know me and those that have worked for me before know that I am a, a sports fanatic um, and was a competitive swimmer growing up. And so that, I think, has instilled in me the value of team. And when I look at the team and the professional staff we have at the Metro Atlanta Chamber, Each person in our organization has value and purpose for why they are doing their job. And so we are in this as a team and not an individual. And so my leadership style is really to lift up the professionals that we have on our staff, allow them to shine and allow them to do their job and do it well. Um, and, and, And I get to stand back and watch them succeed. That's the greatest gift a leader can have is to see those that are working with you have professional accomplishments. And so leadership style really is about um, a team, a team dynamic. Um, And I I hope that, you know, we continue to achieve that.
2: But what about in the instances of challenges or crisis? And I'll go back to some years ago doing the Atlanta cheating scandal and the Metro Atlanta chamber was criticized for its role. Some said you should have just stepped back and let let the process be the process. You were a part of the chamber doing all of that. Um, will you admit that there were some missteps there from the chamber as it related to the cheating scandal and its involvement?
3: Yeah, I think looking back, Rose, um, you know, again, it's much like your question about what can we learn from our past? Mm-hmm. and And this is a great example of looking back, and I think the intentions were um, in the right place. Um, The business community has long cared about educational outcomes. Um, Brad Curry, who has been long a leader in in our community and was chamber chair in 1974, and whom I still talk to every several weeks, um, reminds me that back when he led the chamber, education was a key priority. And so, you know, thinking back on the cheating scandal, you know, we can learn from that Process and and really the challenge that was created not only for our APS, but also the students there. Um, Not only do we need to listen better, but we need to have the right voices at the table and be part of the change. And I think that's how we can apply that lesson to the systemic racism um, that is obviously um, front and center for all of us is not only do we need to listen, but we need to learn. Um, from the various um, voices that are in our community, not just those that we sit around with every day. We need to be collaborative and we need to convene them. And then we need to create an actionable plan. So mm-hmm. it's not just listening um, to our Black community. Um, it is also developing a plan that we can do together. So um, I, it was good to, to draw back on that experience, but I think we can use it to elevate our work going forward.
2: You mentioned you were sports fan, competitive swimmer, I know what that's like, uh, but how much of your personal traits are an attribute for you in terms of your leadership style? Yeah, how much of that comes into uh, well, this?
3: I think I'm a little bit kooky, <laughs> a little bit fun. Um, I enjoy a good belly laugh, you know, I also um, and and quick to accept failure as well. I like to encourage people to step out of their comfort zone as well and not be afraid to, to fail. And I think that's important as a leader for us is if we're really trying to drive change that sometimes we're gonna have to take a risk and, and our team members and our community members and those that invest in the chamber have to understand that we're willing sometimes to take a risk and step forward, understanding that there may be failure, but we can learn from that failure and rose a great kind of learning we can look back to is look back on the 2012 t splash re- referendum right here it was a disaster and, well and look we were we were all in yeah. right so we raised millions of dollars we basically turned the metro atlanta chamber into a 3 month campaign operation to try and get passage and and it and it failed and it failed by a lot yeah but in turn we learned from that process and also educated the community on the issues surrounding transportation infrastructure and the need for investment. In 2015, the Georgia General Assembly passed the Transportation Infrastructure Act that quite honestly put more money into our system than the 2012 vote would have done. And so it's a great example of how failure can lead to success.
2: You just think about the eight years in between, how much could have been, how much progress should have been made as we wrap up, normally we would say, what is your goal for the next year? But given everything that we've talked about from the pandemic and the current tone of our city, here's a better question for you in the next hundred days for you.
3: It's a great question. And I would I kind of look back to an initiative that we formed in March called Restore, which initially was driven by the, the conversation with our business community about you know, how can we prepare for recovery? And so really looking through the economic lens on, you know, are there policy levers, are there regulatory levers that can be pushed? And we have a great framework for that. And actually the team is down at the Capitol this week while the session's going on, trying to advance some of those policies. But what we learned was the most important piece is consumer confidence and public health. And that is really how we drive our economy um, to getting back on the right track. And so if I'm looking 100 days out, I would love to be able to say that consumer confidence has increased, um, that our public health system continues to be able to handle the existing crisis that we have. I'm not foolish to think that COVID is going away in the next 100 days. So I would love to be able to have a partnership with our Department of Public Health, how can the business community really lift and support public health right now and be a true partner in communicating um, whatever the Department of Health needs to make sure our community is hearing. So I think if we, at the end of 100 days, could really um, look back and say consumers feel more confident, our employees feel Mm -hmm. safe going back to work, Um, if they need to go back into the office place and then that our public health system is still um, being able to fully address um, the issues that we have facing us. I I would feel we're in a a pretty decent spot but I want to add one more thing there Mm -hmm. Rose too though is that for the chamber and, and thinking about the issues around systemic racism I would love to be able to say after 100 days that not only do we have a framework in place for our work, but that we've really worked hard to connect with our black community.
2: And Kate, I do want to get your thoughts on this. This is not something that can be solved, obviously, in the next hundred days or even maybe the next year. But what role do you think, if any, the chamber can play in addressing Atlanta's unsheltered and homeless crisis? Because we have one.
3: That, that is such a, a relevant conversation because we've got had this kind of you know collision of the pandemic and the health crisis and what is the impact on our homeless community? Mm-hmm. Um, just from a health perspective and how do we how do we address and treat and ensure that they are remaining as healthy as possible And then you have the collision of the economic impact and we're going to have more families that are faced with either periodic mm-hmm. homelessness, or um, systemic homelessness and um, I have been um, thankful and active with a group called house ATL Mm -hmm. I I think that AJ Robinson has probably spoken to you about house ATL Um, and that conversation started almost two years ago about affordable housing and how do we drive more affordable housing in our community but I know that that group as well as another group that I've been working with on Thursday mornings, um, a rapid response group, have really been leaning into this issue of how do we ensure that our homeless community are receiving the services that they need, both from a health, food, right, resource, but also how can we make sure that they have a a roof over their head? And so I know the chamber, just quite honestly, through the work I was doing through public policy, having engaged in our community, Um, and also wanna give a shout out to Mayor Bottoms because she has been very active in this issue as well around homelessness leading, I believe the task force for the governor. So um, it's an important issue that our community will continue to need to, to address. Um, it was pre-COVID, it's during COVID and it's gonna be mm-hmm. post COVID. So we look forward to working with our community partners.
2: Katie Kerpatchik, the new president and CEO of the Metro Atlanta Chamber, good to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I didn't even mention the fact that you're an Auburn alum here in Georgia. War Eagle. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Take care. Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Georgia Public Library Service is, of course, the state's library administrative agency and a unit of the Board of Regents, University System of Georgia. Now, the agency says it aims to empower libraries to improve the lives of all Georgians. Well, that mission has been a little challenged during the COVID 19 pandemic. Libraries, not just throughout the state, but here in the whole entire nation, have had to quickly pivot to serve their respective communities. But now, as the state is gradually reopening, libraries are also gearing up to open their doors. When? Well, let's ask Julie Walker. She is a state librarian for the Georgia Public Library Service and joins me now to discuss the phased reopening of many local libraries. Julie, welcome back to the program. I'm
1: happy to be back with you.
2: Let's talk about how you all had to pivot and quickly, you know, modify how you were gonna serve so many people that love not only going to the library, but rely on the library, the local library for so many resources. What was that transition like for you all?
1: It was a pretty dramatic transition because it of course came upon everyone really quickly. And our libraries realized that they were actually going to be needed more than ever. And that we still had a whole lot to offer, even though our doors were closed for a while now in Georgia libraries are governed by local library boards of trustees, so it was never a case of the governor closing all. 408 public libraries. Each individual library system, the 62 systems around the state, made those decisions about when to close and how to gradually resume some of their in-person services. But we all jumped in and tried to figure out how we could best continue to serve, even though we couldn't welcome people in the doors as we normally do.
2: Now, of those 408 throughout the state, but I understand that there were a few that did remain open because they either didn't have a large number or a high number of COVID-19 cases.
1: That is correct. We had a few libraries that never did close and you're exactly right. They were all monitoring very closely the local situation in terms of the COVID-19 cases and definitely balancing the risks and the rewards for both the staff and the patrons. And so some of them did continue on with their services. Most did close for a number of weeks and some continue to be closed. So as we as we watch everything going on in each county.
2: At the time of this interview right now, are you all leaving it up then to each individual library system within the state? to decide, one, if they're going to reopen, and how they're going to reopen, and have you all given them the green light to go ahead and make that decision?
1: It is completely up to each library board of trustees, and those boards of trustees also work really closely with the local governments in the area. So, for example, in DeKalb County, the entire county government is taking a really phased approach to opening up all services within the county, including the library. And they're, they're being very cautious because they do still have a steady transmission rate. Mm-hmm. But we don't actually at the state level have the authority to tell the libraries about opening and closing. We're just here to support them in whatever phase of reopening they find themselves.
2: Are you all at least reminding them or encouraging them to look at the COVID-19 numbers in their area have a plan in terms of safety and sanitation?
1: we are we started almost immediately when the library is closed we pulled together a group of the library leadership around the state and worked on a reopening safe reopening plan that actually has been used as a model by many other states because I've shared it with other state librarians around the country they just did an exceptional job of outlining every possible consideration of giving all of the library trustees the resources from the the CDC and other entities that were closely tracking the rates of transmission. We just actually got results of a study that's been ongoing nationally about how long the virus can live on various surfaces that are found in libraries, like hardback books, paperback books, CD cases, those sorts of things that both patrons and staff have to handle all the time. So we were also able to send some remaining state funding to the libraries to purchase the personal protective equipment, sanitation supplies, so that every library, even if they had already exhausted their local budgets, would be able to purchase the things they need to keep their staff and patrons safe.
2: And, Julie, what questions or concerns have you all heard from the local library systems?
1: They do have concerns, of course. Libraries are high-touch organizations. Mm -hmm. Imagine a patron walking in and pulling books off the shelf, looking at it, putting it back. Um, staff who stand right beside patrons as they're using computers to assist them with everything from completing the census to working on a resume um, to doing email so there it, it's a high touch high contact way of working and staff have have definitely been concerned however the staff in the libraries it really warms my heart at how excited they are to get back to helping their patrons they really they know how much and they're hearing from their patrons how much they miss the library miss summer reading and story time miss that computer access so they're eager to get back so we have just been answering as many questions from them as we can providing them with all the supplies that they may need to get back going so that, that they can welcome the public back in.
2: The voice you hear is Julie Walker. Julie is the state librarian for the Georgia public library service. And we're talking about the phase reopening of your favorite local library, wherever that may be throughout the state of Georgia. Well, Julie, let's talk about these phases because there are three phases for our listeners. Let's talk about phase one. What does that include?
1: Phase one is when the library staff went back, but the doors still aren't open to the public. So library staff are doing a lot of, they've really pivoted beautifully to virtual programming. So staff are actually in buildings, recording story times, doing Facebook lives, uh, doing YouTube videos uh, for their users of all ages. They're putting together little packets of craft materials and then doing a virtual crafting event for for kids. So that the phase 1 is just no public in the buildings but mm-hmm. the staff are in there working.
2: And phase 2, what will that be or are any of them in phase 2?
1: A number of them are in phase 2. Actually, 82% of the libraries right now are in phase 2. That's typically curbside service. Mm-hmm. So it's everything from making an appointment to pick up your books that you've placed on hold to picking up those story time and craft packets that the library has put together so that children can work along at home doing library programming some of them are calling it porch pickup mm-hmm. some of the libraries are doing appointments so that people can come in and pick up for example if, if the library is receiving faxes or making printouts for patrons because I think we always keep in mind that a lot of our patrons don't have the technology they need at home to accomplish their schoolwork or their business work so libraries are trying to do the best they can with that as well.
2: And then phase three, I imagine, is that the, the doors are open, come on in, although we're still going to try to practice those social distancing guidelines. But is that what phase three is all about?
1: It is. The phase three is the buildings are that are open to the public. There may be some restrictions. A lot of the libraries are looking at how many people they can safely allow in at any given time and still observe social distancing. They are certainly encouraging and asking their patrons to wear face coverings when they come into the building some are restricting computer use to shorter amounts of time just so that they can cycle more people through because a lot of them just based on the way their computer sections are organized they've had to only allow every other computer to be used, so they may not have as much public computing access, so they may be limiting it to a shorter amount of time. But yes, phase three is buildings are open and patrons may come in. And Julie,
2: I want to get your thoughts on this because obviously with the pandemic, did some of the employees, did they have to be laid off or furloughed? And was there Mm -hmm. any funding available to help local library systems continue to pay their employees?
1: I'm really happy to say that our libraries were able to continue to pay their employees because, as I mentioned, they were actually working. They were working in a different way, but but they were working. Um, Some libraries did have to furlough or lay off the hourly employees that basically shelved the books. Typically, a lot of times those are students, uh, so some of them did have to let those go or furlough them for a period of time. But most library employees did continue to work and were continued to be paid. So and library employees are employees of their local systems. They're not state employees. Mm-hmm. So at this point they are not under those the mandated furloughs that may go into effect next year for state employees.
2: And Julie, right now we're hearing that Georgia is among maybe about twenty states that is seeing an increase in COVID nineteen cases. If that continues, will you then encourage your library systems to maybe take a look that if they need to, they may have to go back a phase or two?
1: We've actually had one library uh, in LaGrange, Georgia, that did roll back last week because they were having an increase in cases in their county and they went back to phase two. Um, We will, we're keeping a really close eye. I stay in touch with the governor's office and the chancellor of the university system and all of the officials that are really monitoring what's going on in Georgia. And I communicate with the library directors daily. So we will help them make the best decisions they can to keep their staff and their patrons safe.
2: Julie, during this pandemic, I've had so many conversations about e-learning or virtual learning for kids who obviously out of school and, and those households that may not have internet access. Will the libraries, even if they are closed, will their Wi-Fi still be available if people just want to sit on the steps? Can they do that just to have some Internet connection?
1: They absolutely can. And that's one of the things I've been extremely proud of. All of our libraries left their Wi-Fi on and we actually marketed that availability that you can come in your car and sit in your library's parking lot and access that Wi-Fi because we're really keenly aware of the digital divide that we have in so many parts of Georgia. And this pivot to e-learning and to all this remote classwork. That came on so quickly for K-12 students, for technical college students, for university system students. We also realized very quickly that some university students who were home for spring break when they found out they weren't going back were left trying to complete their coursework on their phone because no one in their household actually had a device, an iPad or a laptop or Mm -hmm. a desktop computer to do that work. A lot of our libraries check out laptops. So we worked out a system to match up a student with the closest library available that had a Chromebook or a laptop for circulation and to, to arrange a handoff of those devices. And that's, that has just warmed my heart when I have heard from university students who said, you saved my life, you saved my semester. There was no way I could do four or five college courses on a phone for two months. And we will continue to do that. We continue to do that today, and I think that that's a great service. The Wi-Fi uh, in in the two months between the middle of March and the middle of May, we had over two hundred thousand Wi-Fi connections from parking lots and just oh, outside the buildings of wow. the library.
2: You know, Julie, it wasn't that long ago, and I know you know this, that there was talk about because of technology and because everyone was so connected, would your local library still be relevant? But now during this pandemic and because of technology, more than ever, it appears that the local library is so crucial right now. What does that say to you about the future then of the local library and even more advances that can come out of this in terms of being a resource for the community?
1: I think that we have always as a profession been open to change and realized that we were going to have to constantly evolve to meet the needs of our patrons. I think you and I had a conversation a number of months ago about ebooks mm-hmm. and the library's ebook circulation has doubled, tripled since this happened. People who were caught with with nothing to read or who read all the library books they currently had checked out. Are downloading ebooks libraries we're we're trying to purchase as many as we possibly can we do Georgia has a statewide kids ebook collection called eRead kids and the use of that has just been phenomenal as parents are trying to continue the reading and literacy and learning at home we have always had a really robust set of databases on Galileo including something called learning Express that has coursework and lesson plans for k-12 students and the use of that also has just gone through the roof so i think i still don't give up on traditional books i think people will be coming back to their libraries and checking out books i think people in georgia we can see always need our public access computers need our wi-fi need us to provide for some of those technology needs but I think that we'll be looking at new frontiers in terms of downloadable audio and ebooks and the databases that people are able to use from wherever they are.
2: And Julie, I want to give an update because you and I have talked about this whole issue with the ebooks and at least one publishing giant who had put an embargo on how many ebooks the library systems could get. It raised a whole lot of firestorm. What is the latest on that?
1: It certainly did. And I do have an update. About March 17th, Macmillan made a surprise announcement saying that they were abandoning the embargo on ebooks immediately. And the quote from the publisher was There, there are times in life when differences should be put aside. They also started lowering some prices, some ebook prices on a short term basis mm-hmm. for libraries to help them build their collections in these times when ebooks were needed the most. So, this has been a really great outcome to the story you and I talked about earlier.
2: All right. I know a lot of people appreciate that move. Now, Julie, it's become a tradition when I talk to librarians and, and those affiliated with this entire system. I got to end it with this question. What are you reading right now?
1: What am I reading? I just finished a wonderful book. And let me see if I can remember the title of it. This is the way it always is, I believe, is the title of the book. And it was a wonderful, wonderful social study of a family who were coming to grips and coming to understanding with their transgender child it was absolutely moving and beautifully written and i finished it yesterday so i'm gonna i'm off off to the next thing now i'm not sure what that's going to be well, I
2: am reading Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History. You can also get it as an ebook, And it's just, I love children's books. It is by Ashanti Harrison. Again, it's Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History. You can get it as an ebook, And I really enjoy it. So, um, Julie, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for what the library systems are continuing to do for so many people during this time. I know it's greatly needed and greatly appreciated. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it
0: the field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R I C
2: H M O N T.edu. Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Each year There's a local organization that recruits students from around the area to take part in a rigorous and I do mean rigorous 10 month program and summer residency at Harvard College. It's called the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project. And you might recall we actually had these wonderful, talented young people on the program not too long ago. The application process is quite competitive. This year, 25 students were accepted. Brandon Fleming is the founder and CEO of the project. He delivered the news personally. I understand he drove 200 miles to students' doors with a confetti cannon in hand to deliver the surprise. Take a listen.
0: I just so happened to, to be in your neighborhood. Y'all mind coming to the front door for me?
3: What? <laughs> no way. Oh, my God. <laughs>
2: And now Brandon joins me to discuss what's next for these students. Brandon, welcome back to the program. I appreciate you taking the time.
0: Rose, thank you so much for having me. It's such it's so good to see you once again.
2: Uh, how many miles you put on that vehicle? What you drive? What you have, an SUV, Corolla? What you got?
0: Uh, no, I actually have a Lexus RC 350. I oh, well. um, put over, over 200 miles on that thing. <laughs> Now, I'll be honest with you, uh, it was 200, over 200 miles, 21 hours, and I can't say that I would ever do it again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you can't replace the feeling, that look on their faces as you arrived. Uh, just take our listeners through that moment. And what was it like oh, delivering the news?
0: Listen, let, let me tell you. So first of all, the reason why we even did it, every year we have a surprise for our incoming class Um, Because as you mentioned, the admission process is rigorous. Mm -hmm. I mean, we put them through it, you know, and we test their ability to think critically, um, to communicate effectively. Um, And we're talking this is over two months for like six rounds. And so each year by the end of it, you know, they're on the edge of their seats and it's a perfect opportunity to deliver a surprise. You know, and so we've done that consistently for three years now. And so this year we plan to do it again, um, but our plans were derailed, you know, because of the pandemic that unexpectedly shook the entire world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we weren't, because of the stay at home orders, we weren't allowed to have any public gatherings. We're like, oh my God, how are we gonna surprise this group? And we say, you know what, well, we may not be able to gather together in person, um, but I can go to each of their homes. And so that's when I came up with that crazy idea to jump (laughs) in my car. Um, with our videographer and one of my um, former students. And um, we gave each a surprise that they'll never forget.
2: Let's talk about this application process that you all call so competitive. For our listeners who may not be familiar with this, uh, let's back up again. Let's talk about the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project. What's this all about?
0: Over 2,000 applicants, Rose, over 2,000 for 25 slots. And so it's very challenging for us to narrow down uh, an applicant pool of of so many well-deserving students and young people who are eager for this opportunity. And I wish we could um, serve more students, you know, so we have to be very selective to figure out, you know, who's going to be able to endure this process because it's an accelerated Ivy League program where we introduce students to higher level academic disciplines, such as philosophy and political science, sociology, rhetoric, and all of that. And so we have to choose students um, that we believe will be able to survive that process um, and represent us well at the Harvard residency and keep this legacy of championship winning um, to keep it going.
2: With over 2,000 applicants for 25 slots, how do you begin to even filtered through that?
0: It's challenging. Um, One of the most difficult parts of my job, you know, I don't do it alone. We're fortunate to have a very capable um, board and an admissions committee. Um, And we go through all those applications and, you know, the application usually consists of several um, essays that they have to write and Mm -hmm. videos that they have to submit. Um, Quite honestly, what I always look for is tenacity. You know, um, the rest I can give you. But, but tenacity is what I look for uh, a student to bring to the table. And finding that is, is difficult. Um, but in doing this work for so long now, we know it when we see it.
2: You know it when you see it. And so now, though, because of the pandemic, does that change what their experience will be in the diversity project?
0: You know, it's it's already dramatically uh, changed the experience for the current cohort, um, who has two weeks left until we send them off to the uh, Harvard uh, debate residency, which is gonna be held virtually um, mm. online this year. As um, soon as we send them off, we begin with the next group and we've had to conduct classes since February online, you know, and so it's it's been a different speed, um, been a different pace um, teaching virtually is is challenging, you know, which is why a lot of teachers um, around the country have have kind of you know, given up a little bit mm-hmm. um because it's 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 tough, you know, it's it's impersonal. um, you know, it's challenging to navigate the technology. sometimes there's nothing like being in a physical classroom.
2: You cannot duplicate the experience of being whether it's Harvard or any other campus experience for these high school students, you can't really yeah. duplicate that, you
0: know? No, you, you can't, you can't. But um, within the field of education, just like every other industry, we have the responsibility to remain innovative. And, and that's what we hold to model roles, is that you know, even in the, um, with the surprise, it's bigger than just a surprise. We hope it sends a message to everyone that we have the responsibility to adapt. And, and to not compromise on the experience that we give these kids because our educational philosophy is that education is not transactional. Education is experiential, which means I'm not just concerned with what you know, but I'm concerned with what you feel mm-hmm. because Maya Angelou once says something so powerful. She said, you may not remember what people say, but you will always remember the way they make you feel. Mm-hmm. And so when these kids are in our classroom, whether it be physical or whether it be virtual, We want to make sure that they'll walk away feeling something that they will never forget.
2: Well, on that note, Brandon, what's the curriculum here or what the outline for these students in this virtual setting now? Because, you know, debate is all about also energy and feeling that energy from the other team or feeling the energy from your own teammates.
0: And we bring that energy to the screen, too. (laughs) Oh, y'all bringing it
2: virtually?
0: (laughs) Ain't no no screen going to stop us, Rose. We're going to get it either way um but yeah so you know uh we we've switched to this virtual classroom the harvard residency is going to be virtual now and we're going to keep the same energy you know our 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 fire will not wane you know we will continue uh to be exactly who we are you know and and that's what we've been teaching these kids to do uh whatever space you walk into um you have the responsibility to set that room ablaze Mm -hmm. that's what we teach them um let Make sure people hear your voice. Make sure they feel your presence. And that's the same thing we plan to do virtually.
2: The voice you hear is Brandon Fleming, founder and CEO of the Harvard Debate Council Diversity Project. And like a lot of annual events, this year is going to be different. But, Brandon, let's get back to these students for a moment. Uh, 25 students from around Georgia or just throughout the metro Atlanta area?
0: All throughout the metro
2: area. And many of these students, have they been involved in debate? Or for some of them, is it something totally new?
0: Oh, yeah, it's, it's new for pretty much all of our students. Um, we look for students who have never been exposed to academic debate. And that's what's so radical uh, about our program is that we recruit and target students who have never been exposed um, to debate competition. And we train them to go to Harvard and compete against elite debaters from all around the world who have been competing for most of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it shook the entire nation, you know, when our kids walked away victorious, Mm -hmm. not only once, but two times in a row.
2: What questions do they have for you, you all, about the art of debating or just the whole concept? What are those familiar questions you all get?
0: Well, you know, what's interesting is that we don't teach formal debate until the last month before they leave. That's when they learn all the formalities, um, and the reason why is because it's bigger than debate you know it's it's about first finding oneself you know that that's what the educational moment is is all about finding one's voice and finding oneself, teaching somebody not what to think but how to think, how to look at the world and analyze uh, various worldviews so that you may begin to develop your own and appreciate. Uh, the experiences of others, it's about teaching the whole student, you know, and that's what you know, everybody, you know, around the country, you know, as what in the world are y'all doing um, in Atlanta, how are you accelerating these kids at such a rapid rate? And, and here's the answer, Rose, when have you ever seen someone become passionate about something that's not personal?
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: so what we do first is we make the educational experience personal for our students. We meet them where they are. And that's why we say this is the place where scholarship meets
2: culture. I understand that there was a a, a teen uh, who overcame violence and drugs and said the debate saved his life by, I'm quoting here, transforming his ability to think. What do you make of that?
0: One of the things I've learned, Rose, is that where a man has no voice, he does not exist. He can, he can even be present and not exist because inferiority is an induced consciousness whose manifestation begins with silence. That is the story of my life. I did not exist until I found my voice. And soon as I discovered my voice through the transformative power of debate, I knew that this was a tool that I had to take back and share with my community. Um, because if it had the power to transform me, then it has the power to transform a generation.
2: And, Brandon, when you look at the current state of things in our nation, obviously, uh, so many other countless stories we could talk about. Do you think this will come up as a debate topic? And Do you think the students will want to address what's you know, currently You know happening?
0: what's interesting? Mm-hmm. Um, it's already a debate topic. Mm-hmm. It's it's a debate topic for our entire country. It's a debate topic for this world as people are trying to figure out how we move forward. Where where do we go from here? But this is where I would step away from debate, Rose, because um, there's a difference between debate and discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, when I debate, my my objective and my intent is to defeat you but in discourse, my objective and my intent is to win you, um, to invite you into my experience, to invite you into my perspective, and for you to do the same. Discourse is what heals us when we have the ability um, to have critical conversations, um, but it begins with empathy where I say, you know what, I wanna understand your experience and I wanna give you the opportunity to share that with me. Um, And it establishes a sense of experiential relevance um, and cultural competence uh, where we are able to look through the lens of others and and see the world through their view um, and understand their values and reach them where they are.
2: Brandon, what is your hope for these students once they complete this debate project or do you not concern yourself with that that it's whatever it is for them whatever the experience has been to them that's what it is
0: my hope for them is that they build as they climb you know when people ask me um what is my greatest achievement um it's it's not the awards it's not the accolades it's the fact that when i made it to harvard i came back i can't i came back for the rest of us and that's what i teach my students that's what i hope to model for them and that's what i hope that they will practice for the rest of their lives it is true that the harvard diversity project only has a one percent acceptance rate Mm -hmm. but i teach my students that we have a responsibility to the other 99 and and that is why um you know one of our pillars is leadership you know empathetic leadership where where we have the responsibility to reach back into our community and lift others up with us. And that's what we do. And that's why our kids, you know, take what they're learning in the Harvard classroom and they give it back to the community where we have hundreds of middle and high school students from all around Metro Atlanta who don't come to learn from me, they come to learn from our students. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it's all about. It's about us empowering the next generation and then us stepping out of the way so we can sit back and watch them spread their wings and soar.
2: Brandon Fleming is founder and CEO of the Harvard Diversity Project. And this summer, another 25 students were accepted. Congratulations to all of them. A rigorous 10-month program and summer residency, albeit virtual this year, at Harvard College. Brandon, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for what you all are doing for those students and many, many more.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege.
2: That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning
2: Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.